Awesome. All right. If you have your, your Bibles, we're going to be in, uh, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. One of the first, if you grew up in the church, one of the first stories that you ever learned about when you were, you know, barely two or three is the story of David and Goliath, right? In fact, I bet if you were to, to go out into the street with a microphone and find people that are not of the faith, everybody in the world, in America, I guarantee you 99.9% .9 of people have heard the story of David and Goliath. It's kind of become this like metaphor for the underdog going about, it's like big guy, you know, it's it, talking about like corporations and the little guy who's suing the big corporation for something. The news will describe it as a David and Goliath kind of story, how the underdog comes out and defeats the big mean giant, right? I remember teaching Cohen this song. I remember this song from goodness when I was five or six. Only a boy named David, only a little sling, only a boy named David, but he could pray and sing and has the motions with it. I taught this to Kevin. I'm, yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I taught this to Cohen and like at the end it's like, and, in, and, and round and round and round and round and the stone goes up in the air and the giant comes tumbling and we, Cohen and I, we'd do this together, you know, and we would like, I would be the giant and Cohen would sling it and I would fall over on the ground and we would all cheer and he would love to sing that. He would call it round and round. Hey dad, can we sing round and round and round and round? So the, the, that's the interesting thing about these kind of stories is sometimes they become so ubiquitous that they almost lose their meaning. And I, I find that that's a danger in my life is that I can see things and I can hear things so much and it becomes so ingrained that I really forget the power of the story and the power of what's happening. You guys ever have that experience? You know, you kind of forget what this is, that it's not just a fun fairy tale, that this, this is... This is an, an historical event uh, that God, through his, the revelation of his spirit, is bringing to the people and bringing to all generations to look at this and say, you know, what is, what's the power of this? What does God want us to understand? So we're going to take the next two weeks to look at this one very popular story of our faith. Um, and I, I, if, I, I'm not even sure where to break this. All I know is I feel like the Lord said, hey, this is not enough for one week. Don't race through it. So I'm giving it two weeks. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about it just because I'm not really sure, you know, how it's going to go because interesting things are happening with my, my preaching. I feel like, and I've been doing this for 20 years, and I feel like the more I do this, the less I really know what I'm doing, you know? Like there was a time when I had four pages out and they were all color-coded, you know, with all of my nice little points, and sometimes they would all, all have the same letter, you know, like... My three points would all start with the same letter. And that's cool because it's easy to remember. But like, I feel like I've regressed. And now I just kind of write things on, you know, little scraps of paper here. Because I don't, I don't want to be bound to notes. And those of you that have done this before, you preach before, you know it's, it's easy to get bound to notes. And I don't want to do that. I want to just really follow what the Holy Spirit is doing. So I'm going to say that as a disclaimer that if, yeah, if you don't like it, you can get your money back at the end. All right, so we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let me give you a little bit of a background. I'm thinking about this, and I, I'm thinking through kind of where our church has been. Last Sunday was a powerful Sunday. We think this theme of mountains, and if you, were, if you weren't here, uh, what we did is during the, during the worship time, we had a microphone, and I encouraged you guys to come up and to speak out your mountain that you are facing speak it out and say, I believe that this mountain is going to fall. And I was expecting four or five people, but like there were 20 or 30 of you that came and did this. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. 
you know, and I just feel like our, you know, our, the, Lord is, the Lord is directing my, my teaching and my pastoral prayer life um, just into this theme of, 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 of pressing in, of persevering, you know, for, for the days ahead. So uh, this, this story has been on my mind for about a month and a half, and just I never felt like it was the right time to do it um, until recently. So um, let me give you a little bit of a background to this. And the name of this two-week series, if you can call it that, is Facing the Giant. And the giant, of course, can be many, many things if you want to interpret it that way. The Philistines, uh, (laughs) they are really one of the most advanced civilizations of the Middle East at the time. You know, we, we kind of you know, think of them as, as uncouth and barbaric and maybe a little bit ignorant, you know. Um, and, but, but at the time of this story where this takes place with David and Saul, the Philistines were much more advanced than their neighbors, Israel. Um, they were a people who were living on the western coast of uh, the area of Israel. They were a seagoing people, so they had mastered trade and they had mastered you know, uh, naval warfare, and they were very advanced. And like many neighbors of the middle, like many people of the Middle East, um, they were desperate to find good land. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know that it's not all lush and tropical and perfect for growing things. There's a portion of it that is, and at, at the time of this story, everybody was fighting over this fertile land, the land between the Mediterranean Sea on, on, on the west and the sort of the, 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 the range of mountains that would be on the east, and that valley in between was very lush. And this is the land that God had promised to Israel. This is their place, God had said. But of course, all their neighbors were fighting over this, and they wanted it, and, and the Philistines were, were no different. And where the story begins is they are at war with Israel. The Philistines are much more advanced. They have advanced weaponry. They have advanced tactics. They have a larger army. And as we're going to discover, they have got a lot bigger soldiers. Israel doesn't have much. Israel was never intended to be a mighty military force. By and large, they're farmers. By and large, they're sheep herders and goat herders who are just trying to establish themselves as God's people. So this is kind of an unfair fight. And what the story is going to tell us is that what was common in the day is if it, when two armies are coming together in combat, both would realize, look, we can go head to head and we're going to lose a bunch of people on both sides. And that's not beneficial for any of us. So what if we just select one person from your side and one person from my side? We'll let these two represent our armies and we'll let them go to one-on-one hand-to-hand combat. And that was sort of a common way in the time to settle these kind of larger um, military disputes, and it would avoid decimation of armies, you know. Um, and, and, and for Israel, this is, a good, this is really a good idea, because for somebody like Israel who was not, they weren't prepared for this, they didn't have, you know, all of the weaponry, this is a way that they could potentially avoid, avoid a very much a costly and bloody war. So let's just begin reading a little bit here. Um, because we're going to discover that all of a sudden the, the odds become profoundly stacked against the army of Israel. And it says this in 17, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Those things may not mean anything to you, but it's some geographical references to establish this as history. History. 
And Saul, Saul is the king, and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So Israel is over here on one side, the Philistine army is over here on the other, and in the middle is the valley of Elah where the battleground is going to commence. And let me read, and verse 4 says this. So they're expecting, doesn't the, the, the text doesn't say that, but it's likely that they're expecting the same kind of one-on-one representative conflict to happen. Israel as a whole is not expecting everybody to have to go and fight. They possibly have selected their number one champion, and they're waiting for, Phil, for the Philistines to send out their champion. And these two champions are going to come and fight, and the winner of that likely will determine the outcome of the larger conflict. But it says this in verse 4, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Some of you might have a text that says nine cubits, or some, some, some of your translations may have interpreted this. There's two different things that could have been um, but the, the idea is that he was somewhere between six foot nine and nine feet tall. And we'll talk a little bit about him in a minute. But it says this, he had a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, roughly 20 pounds. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the rank of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray together, and then we're going to get into the story. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have faithfully recorded the history of your movement in your people so that we could recall your exploits, so that we could recall your power and your goodness. So, Father, our hearts are open to learn from you and to be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever have those situations where uh, you're, you're sort of, you, you know that it's, you're going to have to do something difficult, but when you step into that situation, it's significantly more difficult than you anticipated. In fact, it's to the point of being overwhelming, and you just want to run for it. Have you ever been there? Maybe a job situation, maybe like a, a conversation with somebody that you know, okay, this, this is not going to be pleasant, but when you actually engage in it, you realize this is absolutely a nightmare. I'm thinking the same thing is happening here. Because the, 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 the army of Israel, they're expecting someone to come out, but they're not expecting this. And the Bible tells us a few things about Goliath. He is, he is a roughly, I mentioned before, he's roughly seven, somewhere between six foot nine and nine feet tall. His armor alone is formidable. And the, we also know that he is from a family of, of, of giants. The Hebrew word is Rephaim, and it sort of refers to this, uh, this race of people, not, not a race per se, but sort of this family of people with these genetic um, abnormalities that cause them to be extraordinarily large and extraordinarily tall. 
And the Bible goes on and tells us that he's got some other uh, people that are uh, of the same. And the Philistines, for some reason, they happen to have these kind of individuals in their army. And we're going to look and we're going to discover this guy named David. And David is the absolute opposite of Goliath. He is the, he is the youngest of his family. He has, he has seven brothers and sisters. His dad, Jesse, had eight sons, and David is the smallest and the youngest. Anybody here the youngest in your large family? You know, it's like the youngest, you tend to almost get overlooked. I hope that wasn't the case for you, but sometimes you kind of get forgotten about, you know, like your parents may be gathering everybody together. Oh, where's so-and-so? Where's the littlest? Where's the baby, right? David is the baby. David is the one who sort of gets, gets overlooked and he gets forgotten. He's also the smallest in the family. He's not uh, strong and, a, and of, large, of large stature. He's not a professional soldier. He is a shepherd by trade. And he serves um, his, his father's family by doing that. And we know from the previous chapter that some interesting things have happened in David's life. We know in the previous chapter that out of nowhere, this prophet named Samuel shows up and pours oil on his head and says, you are the one that God has anointed to be king of this nation. And that's a whole other story. That's a whole other sermon. But that's a powerful thing in itself because when Saul gets to the family, there's seven brothers and everybody's expecting the tallest to get it. And Samuel says, no, it's not you. And he gets it, no, it's not you. And after, it's like the Cinderella story, you know, with the shoe. And like, where, is there anybody else? And Samuel says, is there anybody else? And the dad, Jesse says, well, I got one more kid, but he's out tending the sheep. You probably don't really want him. And Samuel says, bring him in. And he brings him in. And the most insignificant one of the family in a small tribe and a small clan in the tribe, God has said, you are to be king over my people. That's a huge thing. And uh, sort of a, a, brief, a brief moment later then, Saul is tormented by this evil spirit, and the word gets out that there's this young, this, this young boy who is incredibly gifted at music. And every time this, this young lad comes and plays, it just brings this calming spirit. So Saul says, bring him in. And brings in this young boy named David who begins to play. And the, the tormenting spirit leaves Saul. And Saul is so impressed with David that he names him, gives him this honorary title of being his armor bearer. You know? But by the time that 17 rolls around, David is really, he's, he's, he's not much of much significance at all. So there are... At this point, these two armies are coming head to head, and the, the champion presented by the Philistines is the guaranteed favorite, and Israel knows this, and Israel is profoundly demoralized. There is no way we will survive this, and they know that their options are, are pretty limited. They can either fight to the last man assuming David loses, or whoever, assuming Goliath wins, and whoever fights him loses, that's a good assumption. If that happens, then we're either going to fight to the last man, we're all going to die in this place, or we're going to be the slaves of the Philistines. Those are our two options. And this is a terribly demoralizing situation to be stuck in. So two questions then begin to emerge. Number one is this, will this kingdom of ours survive? Will God's plan for us survive to see another day? Because right now, the fate of the nation is in question. This is not just a side skirmish. This is, this is a conflict that will determine the future, the survival of the people of God. 
Will this nation survive? And the second question is, what kind of leadership is going to be required? What kind of king is going to be required? So I think about, I want to pause that, and I want to now look at my own circumstances. I want to look at the giants that, that I faced in my life and the things that I have felt were impossible. And maybe, I may be, I may be alone in this, but I have faced things that have caused me to say, is this the end of God's plan for me? Anybody been there? I have faced things that I were sure would absolutely derail everything that I have been banking on in my entire life. All of God's promises for me are about to disintegrate into ash. What in the world is God doing? And I bet you Israel is asking the same thing. Where is God? What in the world is happening? We are facing imminent destruction. And does God even care? So I'm reading through this, and I, I sense what the Spirit was saying was that besides the physical giant before them, there were other giants in the spiritual realm that they were having to face up to and to own up to. You with me? I can't see you. Come on, I need to hear you. I can't see your faces. That besides the obvious one who is six foot, you know, seven feet tall, there's also some other giants that, that psychologically, emotionally, spiritually are just standing, staring in the face of Israel saying, I will destroy you. So let's kind of go through the story. And I'll tell you what the first giant is after we read a little bit. Let's jump down to 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. So we've already been introduced to him in the previous chapter, but the writer is sort of reintroducing him. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. In other words, Jesse was an old man by this point. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. As you would expect, the oldest sons are, they're enlisting. They're fighting for king and for country. They're going to battle. They're the ones who are like the strongest. They're the ones who are going to be made captains of the army. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. Verse 14, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. They're going to battle. They're doing what real men do. They're suiting up. They're going to the front lines. They're taking their place and saying, we're going we're to protect our homeland. We're going to serve our king. We're going to fight to the death. They went to battle, but David, look at verse 15, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I think this first giant is a giant of unfulfilled promises. But David went back. And I got to wonder how many times did David think upon the events that happened just a short season before. I wonder if he's sitting out there in the pasture tending the sheep all by himself and he's remembering that incredible moment just a short season before where the oil from the prophet ran down his head and he remembered the words of the prophet where he was anointed to be king. And I wonder if he's thinking to himself, why in the world am I not there with the king where I belong? 
There's a promise that God gave me. Why am I still stuck here doing these things? Why do I still have to be the youngest? Why am I stuck tending sheep when I should be there with all of my, with the brothers and with the army getting ready for battle? The Bible says he goes back and forth. Saul needs him, so he comes and he comforts Saul, but then he has to turn around and go home. Why? Because he's got obligations at home. And I think this is the first time I think about in my own life that I have to stare up against are these promises that God has made to me that I've yet to see them fulfilled. Anybody have a promise that God made to you that you've yet to see fulfilled? And it's staring back at him and it's taunting him and saying, God has forgotten. God is not going to keep this promise to you. God is not enough. You'll never be significant. You'll never accomplish anything. You'll never be more than just the youngest, uh, out-of-the-way shepherd hiding in the mountains watching over the sheep. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So in light of that, though, we need to notice something. How does David combat this? How does David combat this giant of unfulfilled promises? What does he do? What do you do? What do you do in the face of promises that God has made to you that he's not fulfilling yet? When it seems like everything is being owed to you, but God is not showing up, God is not coming through. What does David do? He practices faithful obedience. That's where he stands. I know what God has promised me, but God has told me I am to serve here in the insignificant places, in the quiet places. I am to be faithful in the small things so that God can accomplish great things through me. And that's, a, I tell you what, this is a lesson that I'm, I'm 42 years old. And this is a lesson I'm still having to learn season after season. If I want to be fruitful in the big, I need to be faithful in the small. And this is where David is, is, this is where David is making his stand. He knows that he's promised something. He knows that God is anointed for something big. He knows that big things are in store, but I don't know when they're going to materialize. In the meantime, I am faithful and I'm obeying where God has called me to be. That's a hard thing. That's a hard place to be. Let me tell you, whatever God has promised you, don't get ahead of God. He has not forgotten his promises. Every single one of them are yes and amen to you. He is not changing his mind because of you. If he has promised good things to you and you're walking in faithfulness to him, then stay the course. Be faithful in the small things. There's another giant that they're looking at. Jump into verse 16. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 40 days. The sun comes up. The dude is wet on the grass of the Valley of Elah. And the camps are waking up from their slumber. And the sentries are finally beginning to go and get some rest. And before the sun has even begun to make its way up, there is the giant who is lumbering his way into the bottom of the valley with his shield bearer in front of him. And with a loud voice, with arrogance in his voice, he calls out again. Who's going to fight? I'm here. Come on, let's go. And there's silence. There's nothing. He waits and he taunts them, humiliates them, calls them all kinds of horrible names, mocks their God, mocks their pitiful army, mocks their lack of weaponry, talks about their mamas, does it again and again and again. 
finally gets tired, he goes home, he comes back out later that night, does the same thing again. Day after day after day. Humiliating. 40 days. 40 days of psychological warfare. And this is a giant of demoralizing circumstances. Let's keep on reading. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So maybe some little skirmishes going on, but nothing of consequence. Verse 20, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded them. As he came to the encampment, as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So David is now seeing with his own eyes the situation. Maybe he's been back home. Maybe he's like been only hearing things, you know, secondhand. But all of a sudden he is there and he realizes the gravity of this. And he hears these words for the first time. And he sees this giant in front of him for the first time. And he knows this is not a good situation. And those around him are demoralized. 40 days of this. 40 days of, of, of psychological oppression. 40 days of taunting, 40 days of humiliation. We're at a stalemate. We have got to face this giant. Somebody has to go. We are not going to, we're not, there's no other way around this. We're not going to beat them. We can't run away. We've got to send somebody in to face this giant and just deal with it as it is. In the face of these demoralizing circumstances, look at what David does. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Have you seen him? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it goes on to say, the king, Saul, will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills it, who, so shall it be to the, to the man who kills him. So Saul recognizes, look, I've got to motivate my men. I've got to get people, I've got to get my men in action. And he makes up, he sort of like offers this incredible bounty that he likely has no possible hint at all that he's ever going to have to, 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 to carry out. I'm going to give you all the riches. I'm going to let you marry my daughter. I'm going to let you just be the greatest in all the kingdom. Any of you, any of my commanders who will go out and face this giant, I want to make you the greatest in the nation. I don't think, I don't think Saul's expecting it. Who should have led the way? Saul. But he's standing back and he's throwing money at the situation. Somebody else, somebody else. Who, who'll do it for us? Who'll do it? And all the men are looking at one another, not, but, but not me. I, I want to live to see another day. Look, hey, I've got a wife and kids at home, not me. You do it. Oh, no, I'm not going to do it. Are you kidding? Have you seen that guy? 
One swipe of his hand is going to break my neck. There's no way. And this kind of talk has been going on day after day after day. And David comes and David says, look, what, what, what's, the situ- what's the problem? Are you guys going to let him continue to defy God? Are you going to allow him to talk this way? The living God? What's going what's to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and, 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 and takes away the reproach? A giant of demoralizing circumstances. In the face of that, David decides the time to act is now. And I'll admit something very freely to you. I, my tendency is to put off difficult things. Anybody been there? Man, I have avoidant behavior, as a psychologist would say. You know, I want to wait until a more opportune season. I want to wait until I fully understand things. I want to wait until I really feel better about something before I have to do a difficult thing. But in the face of, an, uh, in the face of, a, of, of a demoralizing circumstance, David is there, and the first thing he says is, this cannot continue. He acts with courage immediately. As soon as he does that, though, there's another giant called the criticism of others. Stares him in the face. Look at what it says. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? In other words, David, what are you doing here? Don't you have like a few little dumb sheep you need to be with? I know the presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down just to see the battle. David, I know why you're here. You stupid kid, you're just here to watch. You're just here to gawk and to see the situation. You have no business being here. And David said, what have I done? What do I do now? I just ask, says David. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him as before. Everybody's saying, David, shut up. Shut up and go home. This is not your fight. This is not your business. You're supposed to be back there with the sheep and the women and the children and the other crybabies because that's all you are. Why are you here? Go home. This isn't your fight. The giant of criticism says you are not enough. Go home. This isn't your fight. Anybody felt that way? Felt that way in situations? Like all you're getting is criticism from somebody on the left and the right. And it's usually the people that love you the most. It's usually the ones that are closest to you that are criticizing your, criticizing your motives. You know, calling into question why you're doing things. Attacking you left and right. And David faces this. It gets even more of it. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated him before Saul. Saul, listen, Saul, you've got to shut this kid up. Listen, we know he's a good guitarist. We know he plays good music. We know you really like his tunes. All right, we know you made him the honorary armor bearer, but you've got to shut him up because he won't quit going around asking people these questions. He won't quit going around telling us to, to somebody's got to fight him. Saul says, okay, bring him in. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, me, I'll go and fight the giant. I'll go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, probably laughing under his breath, he says, 
you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. David, you're like, you're like 15 years old. This giant has been fighting longer than you've been alive. He has killed more men than you can count on both hands and feet. You can't do this. This is a suicide mission, son. Go home. I appreciate your, how excited you are. I appreciate your, you know, your zeal for the kingdom. That's awesome. But let's be realistic. But David said to Saul, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Something powerful in this. Remember the first one. Unfulfilled promises. What does David do? Faithful in the small. This is the small. Your servant, I, used to keep sheep for, his fa- for my father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I didn't run away. I didn't call for dad. I didn't call for my brothers. Look at what I did. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. In other words, I, you know, look, these, these lions would come up and they would take a little yearling and they would be carrying him off and I would chase after that lion and I would pull that yearling out of his mouth and if he turned on me, I would grab him by the head and I would punch him in the face until he stopped breathing. That's what I would do. That was my faithful in the small. And he says this, your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Saul, don't you care? King, don't you care that he has defied your army? Let me do something about it. He's just like a bully. He's just like a lion. He's just like a bear coming after your sheep. You're the shepherd. What are you going to do? Let me do it. Because that's what kings do. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And something in his words prompted the king to say, okay. I don't know if Saul really believed him or maybe he was just tired of it and said, fine, go kill yourself. Giant of criticism from others. David stands on the confidence of who he is. But he faces another giant. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. All right? So he says, okay, David, fine. But look, you got to be prepared for this. you got to look the part. I've got my armor. Come here. Listen. Come on up. I've got my armor. I've got my chain mail. I've got my helmet. I've got my sword. I've got my shield. You need to use these. They're not going to, they're just sitting here. I'm sure as heck not going to use them. But knock yourself out. So let's put them on you because you got to be ready for this guy. He's going to be swinging at you. And this, this armor is going to protect you. And you got to, you know, you got to get your shield up in the air. And whenever he blows, pull your shield up like this to block the blow. And then bring the sword underneath and like stab him right there in the kidney. That's a good tactic, David. You should try that. 
you know? Or if he swings at you from the left side, bring your sword up to block it like this, and then bring your shield around. You've got to hold it like this and just try to knock him in the jaw, boom, with your shield and see how that works. Yeah, I get it. I know his chin is like, you know, five feet above you, but try it anyway. You've got to do this stuff. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. Pay attention to that. He strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. It's like when our kids, it's like when like, my little kids get in my big boots, you know, or put on like, you know, mama's high heels and they try to walk around. It's so funny. It's so cute to see them. You can imagine like little David is kind of cute in this little armor. You know, the helmet is hanging down. He can't see. And the chainmail weighs like, yeah, this stuff has got to weigh a good 75 pounds. He's not ready for this. And he faces the giant of unrealistic expectations. Listen to me. Hear me, church. The giant of unrealistic expectations says this is how you need to do it. This is how you need to look. This is how you need to act. This is the expectations of those around you. Put on the right armor because this is how it's done. This is how warriors look. This is how they act. David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. Don't try to fight with weapons that God has not given you. Don't try to walk in authority for places that he has not called you to walk. Don't let somebody else say, this is how you need to fight this problem. If God has said, no, that's not for you. Don't be bound by someone else's armor. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. Takes the armor off, so this is not for me. Look, I know my head is going to be exposed. Clunk. Pulls off the chain mail. Look, I know my arms and my chest and my torso are going to be vulnerable, but I can't do this. Chunk. Takes off the leg things. Look, I know my legs are going to be exposed, but I can't do this. Look, this is who I am. I'm not a, I'm not a professional soldier. I'm a shepherd. I don't know how to swing this. All I know is I've got a sling, and with my sling, I can knock the head off of a gnat 100 yards away because I do it every day. What do you think I do out there with the sheep all day long besides play my harp? I practice. I give my sling and I practice things. And every once in a while there's an animal that comes up and I'm going to take that animal out before he gets within 100 yards of my sheep. That's what I've got. And it says that he picks up five smooth stones. How many of you, honest assessment, how many of you all growing up have ever asked, why did he pick up five stones? Maybe you didn't. I always did. And how many of you assumed it's just because, look, if I miss, I got four more. Don't lie. Come on. Anybody? You guys are lying to me. You know you're lying. You pick up five in case you miss. You got four more chances, right? When you go deer hunting, do you just take one round in your rifle? No. Why? Because you're going to miss. You take a box of these things. Or in Keegan's case, you have like a case of them, right? Whenever you go. Just kidding. Wherever you are, I'm just kidding. Remember what I told you about 
Goliath and his family tree. The Bible tells us by name there were four more in his lineage in the Philistines. I can't help believe that when David bent down, <laughs> this is for Goliath, this is for his brother, and this is for his other brother, and this is for his other two brothers right here. Because when one goes down, I bet the other four are going to come and I'm going to be ready for them. He was not afraid he would miss. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Will this kingdom survive? If so, what kind of leadership is required to get us to that place of survival? So the giants that you may be facing, staring at now and in the days to come, that's going to call into question, is, is, is God's plan for your life going to survive the onslaught? Look at the life of David, facing giant after giant after giant before he even gets into the battlefield. Next week, I want to talk about that final one in the Valley of Elah. How does he win? Sheer luck? Sheer skill? Stand up and Brian, come on up. If you have unfulfilled promises, church, be faithful. Don't give up. God has not forgotten. Even if the oil of anointing is dried on you and the fanfare is done and you're back in the pasture tending sheep just like you were before, don't give up. Because it's your faithfulness in that season right there that's preparing you for the valley. It's just in front of you. You're facing a giant of demoralizing circumstances. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Maybe it's a job issue. Don't wait another 40 days to act if God has told you to act. It only gets harder. It's not going to get easier. What God has said to do, do it now. If you're facing a giant of criticism from others, calling into question your heart, calling into question your motivations. Listen to the voice of the Father. Hear his voice. Listen to him. Facing a giant of unrealistic expectations, take the armor off, put it down. That's not who God has called you to be. That's not he, what, what he equips you with. Because you have what it takes to face the giant. You do. You do have what it takes. I believe it. Not in your own strength, as we're going to learn next week. Meg, will you pull some prayer people up to the front? 
We're gonna do some ministry time and some prayer here. Let me give you this challenge. Let me give you this invitation. You know, I know we've, we've, we've gone a little bit long. I thank you for your patience in this, but we're, just, we're gonna wrap up with some ministry time. Let me give you this challenge, though, that the giants in life are inevitable. But there's a champion who is offering to stand by your side. His name is Jesus Christ. If you've never aligned yourself with him in faith, this is a great day to do it. It's a great day to do it. It's a great day to say, God, I'm, I, I need you on my side. We'd love to pray with you towards that end. Whenever we begin to sing, I'd love to pray with you and talk to you about what that means. If you feel alone, if you feel like, I just can't face these giants in my life alone. I need a, I need a champion with me. We'll talk to you about that. We'll pray with you about that.